0: To Canada and the World. I'm your host, Besma Momani, a professor at the University of Waterloo and senior fellow here at CG. I have two great guests with me today, all the way from France. I have Reem Sara Alwan, who is an international human rights researcher and a PhD candidate in comparative law at the University of Toulouse, Capitale in France. And uh, she focuses on religious freedom, civil liberties, and is an avid watcher of Algeria. So we have her on the podcast to talk about that. I have Khaled Medani, who is an assistant professor. professor. Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies at McGill University. Um, He was a visiting professor as well previously at uh, several other universities, including Oberlin College. Uh, His work is on Egypt, Sudan, Somalia, and has also done work on the Darfur crisis. And uh, we see him today at, at McGill. So welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. So let's do a quick recap because, of course, not all of our listeners are following the day-to-day of what's happening in Algeria and Sudan. Um, and we're going to talk about whether or not they're alike or, or not alike, because there have been a lot of uh, comparisons being made. But certainly a lot of discussion about this being a reinvigoration of the Arab Spring. Uh, basically both of these countries have had for many months a number of protests uh, really against the, the government of the day. In the case of Sudan, it started, I think, fair to say, a lot of economic you know, dispute with rising prices, a, a currency challenge, a enormous economic toll put on people. And of course, we have seen uh, the Sudanese Professional Association, a collaboration of doctors and health workers really being a big part of the organizers. And a lot of the organizers are women. We'll talk about that. But they have been uh, protesting for several months. And finally, we had the 30-year dictator Omar Bashir finally quit. And we've had a number of leaders since then. So we'll talk about um, You know, whether that's a good thing or not. Similarly, in Algeria, a lot of protests against prices rising, uh, economic mismanagement. The former president Bouteflika, who was also in power for a very long time, uh, finally resigned. And now we have a caretaker government after many, many uh, months of protests, uh, including the fact that unfortunately they've turned a little violent in the past few weeks. So that's just a quick recap. So, Khaled, let me start with you. A lot of people are suggesting that this is really economic, that there is Uh, enormous pressure put on people, Uh, the fact that you've had South Sudan now take most of the oil away from the, let's say, the main Sudan. And of course, that means there's less income. Add to that the massive corruption of the Omar Bashir government, and it was just too much uh, for the Sudanese people to take. What's your take on the essence of why this is happening now?
1: Well, uh, the essence of it is, uh, at least the spark of it, was um, economic. There's no question. It begins in, as you probably know, on December 19th of last year as a result of the tripling of the price of bread and fuel that came along with um, economic policies that the regime of the former you know regime of Ahmad uh, Bashir implemented uh, but it quickly not only expanded throughout the country but it was very clear even from the first day that uh, there were political demands that were very very much at the forefront of the grievances of the protesters uh, basically the protesters and the leaders of the protesters made it very clear that while their deep economic Issues, these are intertwined uh, with the kind of political corruption that was associated, and some would say even still associated with the the present regime. So uh, the political demands became very, very crucial. Another issue that makes Sudan a little bit different from its neighbors, at least to the north, is that a central grievance, of course, is also three civil conflicts ongoing in the country. So it's a combination in terms of the catalyst being an economic crisis, uh, but uh, there's absolutely no question that the main demand at the moment is for political reform and in the, a quick implementation or establishment of a transitional civilian government. And addressing the very, very serious issue of uh, the civil wars that are in the West, in Darfur, in the Nuba Mountains, in the province uh, of Kurdufan, and in the Blue Nile state, which borders on South Sudan. So uh, that's, uh, in a nutshell, the real kind of program and grievances and demands of, of the protesters at the moment.
0: And like the other Arab Springs, one of the things that's really interesting is that, yes, there is, of course, a lot of domestic tension and cleavages, let's call it, in many of these countries. But what we see here and what I find remarkable and I have to say is so reminiscent of Egypt to me is this enormous, you know, non-sectarian unity type message. You know, we see pictures in in Sudan of Christians and Muslims praying together, Um, you know, whether people are coming from Darfur, from other regions to the Capital to protest. I mean, it's it's incredibly nationalistic, which is so unique for you know a lot of countries that do have these internal cleavages. I mean, why do you think there's this unity of purpose now, and why do we always see this unity of purpose amongst um, all these various, let's call them cleavages, when it comes to a revolution?
1: I think that I wrote a piece recently that uh, kind of encapsulates my answer to that question, and it was entitled The Virtue of, of Learning from the Past. And um, the, what a central comparison and parallels between all of these um, uprisings in the Arab uh, region has to do with the wonderful uh, work, and not only role, but the work of youth in these countries. I interviewed youth activists in Sudan, in Egypt, even more recently in Morocco, and all of them uh, have a consensus. I mean, they're very clear about the non-sectarian aspects of this movement, uh, the issue of the gender divide that has to be um, really uh, managed, and and also the issues of ethnicity and race, depending on the country, and even cross the social spectrum. It is, as one activist, youth activist told me in Sudan, really an effort at uh, revitalizing a national consciousness, a true national consciousness that encompasses all segments of society. And that is a really crucial lesson that that these different uprisings have learned from from each other. And it's absolutely remarkable. In the case of Sudan, our fault lines have been even more than some of the Arab countries, issues of ethnicity, issues of race, issues of region, the urban and rural divide. And what the activists have done from the very beginning, and this begins actually in 2012, and then uh, a similar protest in 2013, a real effort, a mobilize across different social groups, different regions, different ethnicities. And in the case of Sudan, I would even uh, say different races. You see a remarkable kind of uh, unity, not only among Muslims of the different parts of the country, but um, even more recently, a phenomenal participation of Christian Sudanese as well. And that is something that, uh, that really is a, a virtue of having learned from Egypt, uh, learning, uh, continuing to learn from Algeria and learning from one's own history and the failures of previous mobilizations.
0: Absolutely, and you know I think what what we're getting here is young Arab youth are sick and tired of the divide and conquer strategy that all of their previous leaders have used, and they 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 see right through it. I mean, we see Bashir, we see Bouteflika using divides. In the case of Algeria, of course, you know this this Islamist boogeyman, uh, north south divide. You know, clearly, I think a secular non secular. I mean, there's these. Cleavages that, unfortunately, every leader is used in the region to, to divide and conquer, and it's worked. Uh, Reem Sara, let me turn to you. Algeria, of course, you know, for many, many years with the Arab Spring uh, ongoing, everybody looked at Algeria and expected it to be the one country that would also join. And, of course, because of its terrible civil war in 92, uh, we saw, in fact, no such real... Uprising. I mean, there were little little protests here and there, but never took national scale the same way that many of the neighbors did. But now, finally, we've seen you know many young people and and professionals. I mean, all walks of life are coming out in Algeria now, demanding change. They've gotten Bouteflika out, but they're not satisfied, right? They have another seventy-seven-year-old taking the place of Bouteflika, very much still deeply in, you know entrenched in the deep state. What are people now? hoping that they can do in Algeria?
2: Well, you know, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, But I would add that Algeria has been in a constant Arab spring. Actually, it has been through like all seasons. The summer, you know, after the war of independence. And then the fall. And then we had the Black Decade. Winter has came. And now it's spring again, but with a hint of winter as well. So, you know, people... The Algerian people are are very strong people, resilient. They have been through many wars. Uh, They have had the Arab Spring 101. They have seen uh, what Islamists can do. You know, Algeria had ISIS 101 in the 90s, right? So they have learned a lot, but they were also tired of it. So any hint of stability were actually a good thing. They were patient, but they know that things could not last forever. And, you know, the last straw was really the, you know, Abdelaziz Bouteflika running again, a man who has not been seen by the public for, what, six years, five, six years? I still remember, like, the guy going to vote with someone pushing his wheelchair, not able to speak or move people of his entourage taking his ID card, voting for him. And now they were, you know, before everything happened, like the frame. People were basically saluting the frame. It became a joke and it was a last row.
0: It was an absolute joke. I mean, incredible. It
2: was a joke. It was exactly. It was making fun of a country that has suffered and gone through, you know. uh, so, So they were like, we are done. Now people, um, and thanks to social media, because everything happened through social media, uh, the youth in Nigeria is very savvy um, when it comes to technology. Um, They're educated, they're open to the world, and they know what they want. So they learn from the past, the 90s, they learn from the Arab Spring, and now they're ready to take their country back from its tyrants. So they are not naive, they know what they can do immediately, what they can do, and they absolutely know that it would take years to erase all the, all the terrible things that current government and previous government and all of the, you know, apparatchik has done for decades. They ruin Nigeria now it has to be built again and again.
0: It's, it's it's incredible. And I remember that that time when he was being wheeled into the polling station, it was a young boy, a 10-year-old that was wheeling him. in. I mean, what a, a contrast, right? And of course, the entire uh, Middle East and North Africa is a society un- predominantly under the age of 30. So, you know, this 80-something-year-old, again, as you said, incapacitated to just claim that, you know, he's in charge and wants to run again. was just absolutely insulting to a very intelligent and, and cosmopolitan society. Uh, Let me turn back to you, Khaled. So the big challenge we have, and of course, the lesson uh, of Egypt, and we keep saying Egypt because it really was the biggest experiment um, in in Arab Spring Revolution, and, and really the clock turned backwards, I would argue is, of course, how do you get rid of the deep state, right? We've seen just in the in the past few days, you know, once Omar Bashir resigned, the next person came in, he was met with a great deal of protest, then he resigned, another person came in. I mean, the reality is, it's just musical chairs at the top, they're all rotten. So how do you... <laughs> What do you think is the way forward for us in analyzing and talking about these countries to really see effective change when many of these governments did everything to remove all forms of civil society, political parties, because they were seen as opposition to the rule? So where, where is the hope in that there would be a genuine revolution and not more of the same?
1: I think the hope has to do with uh, what my colleague from Algeria, Reem, uh, just said, and that is an acknowledgement uh, very clearly among uh, the youth and others that are spearheading these protests that it's going to take a long time. But what is hopeful is that, for lack of better phrasing, uh, these young activists, these, these youth, are theorizing how to dismantle uh, the deep state. They understand full well the lessons of At the moment, uh, for example, the protesters are uh, distributing pamphlets itemizing the problems that occurred in Tahrir, uh, the problem with not pursuing the pressure against uh, the institutions of the regime. And their demands, as you probably have been following, is that they're very clear that they're not calling just for the overthrow of Bashir, of the one, of the military leader that succeeded him, who was then deposed and ousted within 40 hours. They are calling for the dismantlement of the regime itself, a regime that is dominated by security forces, a regime that, by some estimation, is not only corrupt, but basically monopolizes 50% of the national economy. Uh, security forces that, you know, unleash uh, violence against uh, protesters, but also throughout the country. And so there's a real realization that, number one, it's going to take some time, but number two, that this cannot be accomplished without continued pressure, an interim civilian government that is non-ideological and that is composed of technocrats, uh, including youth, and especially uh, including women themselves, and the participation of the military, of perhaps, as uh, Sudanese activists say, 10 percent, in the interim civilian government of non-ideological independent leaders from the military. There is a real understanding that it's a long road ahead, but also that the mechanisms, institutions of the deep state can be dismantled. But the first order of business, so to speak, is an interim civilian government. This is something that uh, Algerians are saying. Just today I saw, I heard Algerians on Arab television uh, also remarking that that is their task and also referencing the continued mobilization of Sudanese and the sit-in in Sudan to kind of emphasize that the dismantling of a deep state is possible. It'll take a long time, but we have to theorize it. We have to understand how that is possible after decades, decades of this kind of deep state uh, and an alliance between the upper ranks of the military and security forces that control not only the population, but also the economy.
0: Indeed, and it's it's not an easy task, but you know the the benefit, it's not only you know almost ten years later from the first Arab Spring, is that we do have failed examples. and the fact that they do speak the same language, there's an opportunity to share best practices and to learn from other people's mistakes. I'm sure there's a lot of communication between both uh, Sudanese activists and Egyptian activists who have a long history together, of course, but they can really share a lot of the mistakes that they made, including, I believe, many may argue, leaving Tahrir Square exactly at a time when the military came in and said, we're your savior, and we're going to take care of the process. I've seen plenty of signs in Sudan that say, do not trust the military. And there's a beautiful saying, you know, it says, uh, if we don't get victory, we get Egypt. And it actually rhymes in Arabic. So it's really quite interesting. This concept of learning from the other case study is really key.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, Reem Sara, turning back to Algeria, what are the protesters thinking now? What is their next move, in your opinion? Uh, That's a very good
2: question, and actually it allows me to respond to my uh, dear... uh, friend and colleague Khalid, Uh, same thing, like, do not trust the military. That's also the one thing everybody is saying in Nigeria. Uh, Do not trust them. And I firmly believe, and I'm uh, putting my um, jurist hat here, uh, that the transition has to be given to civil society. Of course, the army will have to be part of it. Let's not be, you know, like, it's also part of uh, the apparatus. But The civil society has to take over. And it's very interesting because like Sudan, now academics actually are calling citizens and are creating uh, what they call citizen committees to actually work together to create and elaborate a framework for the transition. They are working on it. There are even people who also gather together to study constitutional law because they realize that... Nobody told them about the constitution. You know, you keep people in ignorance to be able to control them better. I know for sure from my colleagues in Nigeria, when I see the lectures of constitutional law, I'm like, what are you studying exactly? Because basically it's not really deep. You're not going in, you know, it's an old trick, just ignorance allows the more powerful to rule over you, right? So now they are taking care of it. Study constitutional law. People are trying to, create a sort of second republic in the end. But again, it would take a lot of time. But again, we have people who are aware of things, who know about the outside world. And again, they say, no more Egypt. or well, we are not Syria, actually, in the case of Algeria, because uh, I know, for example, from France, France was scared of the possible... Uh, return of Islamists. Also, the possible of flood in, of immigrants coming to France because the stability won't be ensured. But hey, the most important for now is that the people in Algeria are the priority, right? And right now, the Algerians don't care about what the West has to say. They care about saving their country. And I think there is this sort of citizenship, citizen consciousness that is back. It has always been here. You know, Algerians are pretty proud of the country, especially after what they have been going through for such a long time. You know, the co- I always say that Algeria has been colonized twice by the French and by the people running the country right now.
0: Absolutely. And maybe, hopefully, they'll learn from Tunisia's example, which really took their time. They did a national dialogue. They went around the country, listened to the people, and did this bottom-up uh, process of rewriting the constitution. It took a lot of time and many people, at the, I remember when it was happening, were impatient, saw Egypt, for example, with this top-down constitution that was voted on with a referendum. It, it seemed like, why is Tunisia taking so long? But I think they did it right. In the end, they got the bottom-up civil society to agree to a constitution. And, and that is a more long-lasting type of process than trying to rush this from the top down. Reem, Sara, Sara thank you so much for your interventions and your comments and uh, I hope we can keep in touch thank you so much for having me I really appreciate um, and
2: I love your work so it was an honor thank you
0: so we know turn to Amir Ahmed Nasr, who is an exiled Sudanese-Canadian artist and author of a memoir called My Islam, How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind. And he's also a journalist and wrote a very interesting op-ed just this week in the Washington Post. Uh, Thank you for joining us, Amir.
3: Thank you. And I would just finish the subtitle of the book, which is How Fundamentalism Stole My Mind and Doubt freed my soul. That was my backstory and memoir published in 2013.
0: I love it. I love it. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about what's next for Sudan. And, and, you know, you're a valuable member of the Canadian Sudanese diaspora. What's the role of diaspora in fighting for uh, freedom and uh, revolution in Sudan today?
3: Well, when it comes to the role of the Sudanese diaspora, especially the Sudanese community, any diaspora that has been formed as a result of war, where they came from, as a result of oppression, fleeing authoritarianism, such a diaspora has very valuable insight and knowledge when it comes to what oppression actually means and how to maintain and preserve freedom. So I think first and foremost, the Sudanese diaspora here has shown great courage and effort in organizing protests right here in downtown Toronto, where I am. And those protests, got the attention. They got the attention of the CBC. Some of the reports have been viewed by people in Ottawa, decision makers, and it actually did have an effect. Long term, however, I think we have a role to play right here within Canadian society, not just at the level of, you know, influencing politicians, people who are decision makers to do the right thing when it comes to Canadian foreign policy. But I think long term, we have lessons to share here within Canadian society about the overall threat when it comes to the rise of authoritarianism. And we're not immune from it and it can happen anywhere as we're already starting to see in a lot of places.
0: And, you know, uh, of course, the Sudani uh, diaspora community is quite large. Uh, many, even in the Middle East itself, uh, of course, the Gulf, uh, Egypt, but also it, it, we talked to with uh, Reem Sara about Algeria and of course, a very large diaspora community in France. And from my own research of the Arab Spring proper earlier, we saw a lot of involvement of diaspora communities. They were fundamental in everything from support to helping when the internet goes down, to continue spreading the messages, to being interlocutors and, and even finding guest speakers to come on, you know, the Canadian media to to talk about what's happening on the ground. I mean, they really are very, very important.
3: Absolutely.
0: So let me ask you something else. What would you want Canada's government to do? I mean, what's our what should be our foreign policy approach?
3: That's a great question. I appreciate that you raise it. I mean, the backdrop of what's happening right now, specifically in Sudan, but also in other countries, the backdrop is a United States that can no longer be relied upon when it comes to leadership, leadership for maintaining the international order post-World War II, leadership when it comes to NATO. And I think we as Canadians, citizens, and definitely the government, there's a realization that's starting to dawn in us that we can take our security for granted anymore. We can't rely so much on the United States as we used to. That's, that's not a given. And so this is the backdrop. This is the context in which we find ourselves. And I think what was instructive was Saudi Arabia. You know, what happened between Saudi Arabia and Canada? No one stood up for Canada. No one stood by Canada. The United States statement during the crisis between Canada and Saudi Arabia was pretty mild. And so in that sense, I think we're finding ourselves quite isolated. We can't rely on the alliances that we used to have for decades in the same way. And so we have to become more outspoken and more assertive on the world stage. Easier said than done, because for so long, Canada's character, national character, especially when it came to foreign policy, the way it was reflected and manifested is as a peacekeeping nation. You know, Canada didn't really get engaged very actively in waging wars and and deciding things, kind of went along with the NATO alliance. And yes, it was involved in numerous wars, but we've always seen ourselves more as peacekeepers. And we've done a lot of great things through the United Nations historically. So now, now we can no longer just pay lip service and slack behind. We've really have to up the game when it comes to foreign policy, not just in regards to Sudan and supporting the Sudanese protest movement, pro-democracy, peaceful, already reported across the media that it genuinely has been peaceful. So when it comes to Sudan specifically, we must insist that the military council hand over power to a civilian government immediately. And in terms of leverage that Canada can use, Canada can, you know, bring up the matter and raise it with allies. Um, when it comes to intelligence sharing within the five eyes, um, set up an agreement because Canada's part of that. Do we want to collect intelligence from rogue regimes that abuse human rights just because they're providing counterterrorism intelligence and turn a blind eye? Until when are we going to do that? The number two de facto VP right now in Sudan is a man nicknamed Hamati. He is responsible for some of the most horrific, inhumane atrocities War crimes over the last decade that include rape of women, little girls in front of their families, and then after that, the families get shot. After witnessing such horrific inhumanity, this is now the number two VP. The person representing the United States embassy in Khartoum went and met him and shook hands with him. The UK ambassador met him, shook hands with him. The EU representative in Khartoum went and shook his hands and met up with him. They confer legitimacy upon a warlord. And that is unacceptable. And so does Canada have the weight to really influence matters like these, especially given that right now the world doesn't really seem to care about human rights and democracy and it's in retreat? You know, what can we do? And it's a big question and I don't have the right answer, but we definitely need to become more assertive and more focused on our foreign policy role in the world.
0: Absolutely, Amir. I mean, you're absolutely right. And at the end of the day, this will actually ruin our brand if we meet with these kinds of people. I mean, you know, you mentioned um, this man who, again, is behind the Janjaweet massacre, genocide of people in Darfur. It's absolutely appalling that Um, there would be representatives of uh, democracies meeting with him. Um, Let me just ask you one last question. I'd love for you to keep it brief. You're an artist and there has been an amazing amount of cartoons and art and spoken word. And, you know, coming out of Sudan today, that's just remarkable. Can you just give us a flavor of what you uh, have seen on the ground from social media that really stand out to you?
3: I really appreciate you asking this question. We could see the prelude to the revolution happening a decade ago. I started blogging in 2006 anonymously with a pseudonym. And through the blogosphere and with the rise of social media, one of the big advantages for us as Sudanese youth in the diaspora and certainly within Sudan is for the first time, we have a voice. We've never had that. And so the adoption of social media over the past decade Early on, it happened slowly, but after that, it really started speeding up and reached a tipping point. And that gave birth to short films on YouTube by Sudanese filmmakers, indie filmmakers, rap artists, musicians, so many women taking a role in playing, you know, an active role in creating culture, spoken word poetry competitions in Khartoum, the youth did not have an outlet to participate in politics. They did not have an outlet to participate in business, in the economy, in any real sense. So the sphere that was left was culture. And because the regime didn't co-opt the online tools, that flourished. That changed the self-image of Sudanese youth. It changed their consciousness. And it made them very aware of the kind of injustice that they face every day until it became unbearable and they realize either they die without fulfilling any of their dreams, or they stand up for their dreams and they fight for their freedom. This revolution happened because of those youth, and then the rest of the country started joining.
0: Thank you, Amir. That was fascinating. And uh, you are a product of the amazing uh, culture and history and intelligentsia of Sudan. So thank you. And of course, we really appreciate all of your translation of what is happening in your home country to all of us here in Canada. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm Dr. Andrew Thompson, Program Officer at the Balsi School of International Affairs. The Canada and World podcast is produced by the Balsey School of International Affairs and opencanada.org. Please subscribe to this podcast. The latest episode will be downloaded right to your phone so you don't miss an episode and can listen on the go. Canada and the World can be found on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and your favourite Android podcasting apps. If you'd like to know more about the Balsey School and our graduate programs, please visit balseyschool.ca and feel free to reach out to us.